you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. We're so certainly appreciative that you have joined with us today in the uh, holy matrimony of the Chris Voss Show, the giant cult religion. This guy—it's not a cult. Don't, don't, don't start doing that, Chris. The giant podcast in the sky. Fourteen years, fourteen hundred episodes, two to three new podcasts a day of the most brilliant minds we can book on this show. Like literally, we only take the most brilliant of minds, and then there's me. So there's that. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, we're going to be talking about the UFC today and the story behind the UFC. You may have heard of it. It's a giant. Uh, it's a giant federation of uh, some stuff that goes on. So we're going to get into it and find out what it means and what it's about and how it was built and how the UFC turned into a $10 billion industry. In the meantime, go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, over on TikTok, where Chris Foss One and the Chris Foss Show podcast as well. See what we're producing over there. I'm talking to people uh, daily, like uh, I guess you're supposed to over there. I don't know. You're talking about stupid stuff. I will not dance on that. That will not happen. Uh, he's the author of the latest book that just came out uh, June 20th, 2023, Cage Kings, How an Unlikely Group of Moguls, Champions, and Hustlers Transformed the UFC into a 10 billion, billion, billion is a B industry. Uh, and that's just one. There. It's into a $10 billion industry. People are going to be double, tripling the billion when they search for it on Amazon, so don't do that. Uh, Michael Thompson is on the show with us today, and he'll be talking to us about his amazing insight research in the book. He is a writer in New York. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Slate, Vanity Fair, The Daily Beast, e Aeon, uh, Forbes, Al Jazeera America, Adult, Talking Points Memo, Los Angeles Review of Books, Complex, the Paris Review N Plus One Book Forum, The Believer, The New Republic, Kill Screen, The New Inquiry, and The Millions. And now he's reached the Pinnacles career, The Chris Foss Show. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Sorry. There you go. I'm glad we could finally just cap off, you know, just the pinnacle of your resume there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I should have shortened the list. I, sorry. I was getting a little bored myself listening to all those. Like, I don't think do we have four. From, stop at four. Right? There you go. I don't think we have anybody from Slate or Al Jazeera America on. We should look into that and see what's going on there. So uh, give us the dot com so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Dot com mm -hmm. or dot net or you know whatever Twitter. Uh, I largely just operate on a Gmail at this point. <laughs> I've ah. given up having a port. I have a portfolio site, but um, okay. I have a Twitter account that I never really All look right. at or use that often anymore. But you know. All right. Well, best thing to do is just to go to the Amazon link on the Chris Voss show and order up the book, and then you can send him a nice. You can tell him what you think of him on the review. There you exactly. go. Does that work? Yeah. Is that working? Sure. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, what motivated you want to write this latest book? And I think you have two or three books, don't you? 
Yeah, well, sorry. I I wrote kind of a, a essay collection about like love and dating and stuff like mm. 10, 12 years ago. And then I had an essay in an anthology about um, American cities where I wrote about the city I grew up in, Fresno, uh, which coincidentally is one of the most fervent, um, one of the most fervent mixed martial arts fan towns, according to really? uh, one one recent uh, audience survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, the book had a couple of different sort of stages. Originally, I wanted to write a history of prize fighting across mm-hmm. you know a couple hundred years to kind of look at the way um how different sort of eras sort of gravitated to violence in different ways and how they presented it um mm-hmm. culturally and then you know over the course of about a year and a half that kind of whittled down i got some very helpful suggestions from my editor at simon and schuster's like why don't you just tell the history of one time and place instead of stretching it out across you know mm-hmm. all of these things you might be able to go deeper if you just sort of focus a little more narrowly on just this time and place and so i mean the ufc was the most obvious choice in part because i've been a fan my whole life i was a junior in high school when the first one came out and it, it kind of every stage in my life it's always sort of been there in the background partly because i was i was always interested in martial arts and boxing and fighting um and also partly because they were interested in people like me, my demographic, I was their target audience. And I was sort of curious about what made, you know, my generation, my specific age cohort, so valuable to companies like the UFC, why, what, what kind of business were they building out of a kind of audience of people like me? What was the sort of mechanisms behind the scenes that, that made that work financially? So that was there cool. you go. That, that's interesting that you mentioned the span of time and the arc of generations yeah. because I grew up with boxing. I grew up with Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, and uh, Frazier, and uh, who did I just do an imitation of? I always forget his name. Uh, but I grew up watching ABC, Wide World of Sports, and yeah, uh, 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 Crow. Ah, why can't I remember uh, I can't remember the the, the famous uh, ABC announcer who you know he was he was Cosell Cosell Howard yeah. Cosell yeah this is Howard Cosell um, and I, I I just I thought he was the greatest dude ever and of course you know watching those fights those the Muhammad Ali in his prime just just something else to to behold and uh, and then generationally weirdly my brother never got into it but he got into uh a world wrestling world mm-hmm. wrestling federation wwf yeah i still to this day mm-hmm. think it's real or he thinks it's real i think to this day which may explain his uh who he votes for and and as a president um <laughs> and then uh and then you as you mentioned uh you know you you kind of came of age under ufc so it's interesting kind of how uh that develops as time has gone by yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth between the worlds of pro wrestling and the UFC too. I think Josh Gross, who wrote the history of the Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki fight, um, he sort of fished out of the archives. But apparently, Vince McMahon Senior, Vince McMahon's dad, who sort of got the the WWF off the ground and turned it into a juggernaut in the '60s, he used to use the phrase "mixed martial arts" to promote the WWF oh. and like pro wrestling. So it's sort of 
you know, it's it's an idea that's got a long history and, and the Fertitta brothers in 2000, when they brought the company um, and took it over, they used a lot of um, the WWF at that time it was pre WWE. They used a lot of the legal framework for how that business was structured for like fighter contracts and, you know, just revenue modeling to see how they could make the UFC a, a success. There you go. <laughs> And, and your title of the book is how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers mm. transform the USC. Give us like a 30,000 overview of the book, if you would, please. And, and, uh, just kind of a top down. Sort of thing, and then we'll get the deets. Um, yeah, sure. I, you know, my, my glib way of describing it was kind of war and peace for the tribal <laughs> tattoos and cargo shorts generation of, of suburban men. Um, the cargo but, shorts wow shots fired yeah i mean you know if you know, you know if you know you know if you know you know yeah <clears throat> um it's it's a sprawling kind of story it, it spans multiple generations it starts in the 90s um when the business environment was very different the whole plan for the company was a very different plan than what we know of today as a ufc but it, it kind of just you know tries to chart and track the lives of both the fighters involved in the UFC and the people running the UFC and how, you know, in parallel, you know, the, the company shaped each of their lives and ambitions and what they hoped for when that's, you know, Dana White or Bob Myrowitz or Art Davey or, you know, the Fertitta brothers on the sort of corporate side. Mm -hmm. And then on the fighter side, I picked four main fighters that kind of spanned the, the company's whole sort of history up to the sale in 2016 it's randy couture nick diaz and his brother nate ronda rousey and then conor mcgregor is sort of the big finish there um, you go. do you get into dana white much i mean yeah absolutely kind of the guy that sure yeah yeah he gets the last word in the book how were they friendly to you did they give you any interviews or any space time um, the UFC cooperated a bit. They gave me a few interviews and I, I went out to Vegas a few times to talk um, kind of off the record, just about what the book was oh. and what, what I was interested in. Sort like, of what are you writing? Presenting. Yeah. You know, to feel me out. And, you know, I got to visit the offices a little bit. And, that um, office is massive out there, isn't it? That facility. Yeah. I kind of described it in the book in the, in the epilogue. I sort of write about one of those trips. It's, it feels almost like a military compound, like you're in a green oh, yeah. zone or something. It's like a big sort of barrier around it. There's like a big quarter mile parking lot before you can get up to the, and then it's just this cube in the middle of nowhere. And it is, yeah. it's out in the middle of nowhere, which like, is pretty much, I think you just described Vegas actually. So yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> There's another book just about Vegas. There you go. Yeah, that could be the next one. Of, yeah, the parking spots of Vegas. Uh, you know what's interesting to me is you you talk about the rise of this thing, and it went through a, a couple of kerfuffles that almost mm -hmm. seemed like it was going to kill it and put it out of business. And I think this is why books like yours in the story makes it much more salient and interesting because this wasn't just a, like an overnight success story. It's like, hey, we're going to do this, and boom. Um, you know, at one point they started doing the fights and, and you'll, you'll, I'm sure fill me in better on this, but they were, they were banned in many States and how, how did that play in and, and, uh, and, and some of the details that you uncover in your book? Um, yeah, it, I think that's one of the interesting things I kind of tried to tease out in the first chapter a little bit was kind of how small an operation it was initially. Like mm -hmm. anyone that maybe has worked in the entertainment 
industry. Like before I started writing, I worked in the movie industry for a while. And like, you know, the way that sort of movies and TV shows are designed to be able to scale up very quickly for like a five or six week shoot and then just evaporate again into like a producer and an assistant sitting on a studio lot. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the world the UFC came out of where, you know, it was a very small, you know, the company that financed it originally or partially mm -hmm. financed it, um, Semaphore Entertainment Group. Um, you know, they're a subsidiary of BMG, the big music conglomerate. And, you know, their, their sort of idea was that they were supposed to find original pay-per-view programming. And, you know, they had a pretty small staff and they found Art Davey who was pitching this idea for what would become the UFC. And they kind of just put it together in a matter of months. Davey had been working on it on his own for a couple of years at that point. But by the time he got their backing, it went, I think, within seven or eight months from them being interested. I think he had called them in March of 1993 and they targeted an October sort of live broadcast. And so the whole thing, you know, it was a really small number of people and a really short period of time and they just ran with it. And so they were not at the point of like doing exhaustive legal research or anything like that. They were just sort of like getting over yeah. every hurdle as quickly and simply as possible. And, um, and, and it was interesting how the put, how big the pushback was, I think when it first launched, yeah. um, you know, I mean, it, 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 you you see this with the uh, the establishment of you know I I lived in Utah during skiing when they finally came out with snowboards and oh my god that that was heresy and you know they were getting banned and kicked off the off the uh, off the slopes and banned from you know skiing and then you know years later they finally adopt to it and I think you know boxing was so big back then uh, the World Wrestling Federation I don't know if they opposed it but I I believe it was the boxing commissions and stuff that were like this is not going to fly. Is that how it worked? Yeah. I mean, it, it initially started and that the, there was an ambiguity with a lot of um, boxing commission. That's why they launched in Denver because there wasn't a commission there to interfere one way or the other. So they couldn't get approval or not. So, it, um, but as soon as people realized that's how they were operating, then a lot of States, a lot of local politicians, you know, some just sort of cynically for PR wins, but others out of kind of a genuine moral conviction really started to, to try and oppose the sport. Um, but initially the UFC had a number of early wins in court because the courts would rule that um, because it was such a new sport, the, the, the laws sort of defining how athletic commissions uh -huh. operated, they didn't actually have um, the ability to, to, you know, oversee mixed martial arts because it's, you know, they're the way their laws were written were about boxing, mm -hmm. about, you know, other sports. They don't specifically mention mixed martial arts, or, you know, cage fighting. So a lot of courts early on said like, you, you know, you don't have authority to stop this under the specific law that, that governs the commission. Mm -hmm. And they figured that pretty quickly. And that's when you had this sort of cascade of, of state legislatures sort of correcting that loophole pretty quickly. And then putting pressure on the pay-per-view providers. And um, I think starting in 97, that's when all the pay-per-view providers pushed the UFC off to kind of appease John McCain. Um, and then, you know, the only place you could get UFC from 97 to 2001 was um, satellite pay-per-view, which yeah. was 
like 20% of the amount of homes that you had with linear cable pay-per-view. So and they, they really struggled. And then you have a quote from the book, Senator McKean, John McKean, once derived, decried martial arts as human cockfighting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I told you in the pre-show, my friend at Club Axis, uh, Corey Draper, used to hold the UFC fights when they got banned everywhere. And yeah. um, Utah was... Utahns loved it, man. They caught on to it really quick. Um, and my models for my model agency used to be the the model girls, the card girls, or whatever. And uh, I've got plenty of photos of that. I, I never even thought of that. But uh, uh, what was interesting was watching them because I would get ringside because I, you know, they're my girls, and so it was, you know, you're like, hey, I get ringside. But I remember it was hard to it was hard to deal with. Uh, with the violence level of it. Cause you weren't used to it. And mm -hmm. I felt, I felt stuck in the mud. Like, you know, I, Muhammad Ali boxer, there's just, there's something of class to it, which there probably isn't. It's two men beating each other to death. Yeah. Um, but I remember watching it and I remember telling the joke that I've told ever since that, that, well, now I know what, uh, prison grape looks like mm -hmm. uh it's it, just the violence and men crawling around with each other on the floor and and just it it didn't seem it seemed to be way more violent to me and i think it is uh than boxing but it was hard to wrap my head around i mean basically is what i'm saying i, I had a hard time with it i think a lot of people did and uh i don't know what that means or what how that's pertinent but uh it, it was something that i think people kind of struggled maybe we had to come to an agreement with that as a society go yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's let this roll. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's still, you know, some debate about whether it, it's more or less violent. You know, the MMA people say it's, it's less violent in boxing because it's mm -hmm. less about head trauma. And, uh -huh. you know, there's a lot of sparring is grappling sparring. It's not, you know, just striking sparring. It's, it's more of a mix and the gloves and, you know, allow you to transmit head trauma. Um, it takes a lot more force with gloves on to knock someone out than with the four ounce gloves. Um, I, I would, in the end of the day, I think they're both probably equally violent. I think mm -hmm. the UFC was just a new form of violence that people weren't used to. And there was a sort of barbarism to, especially the early shows where, you know, um, you know, I kind of quote in the, in the book that, you know, people were pulling each other's hair out in the first UFC and the commentator, <laughs> Kathy Long, who was a, a world champion kickboxer who was doing color commentary. who was like, wow, you can see just tufts of hair falling down into the octagon there. That's not wow. something you see every day, but that was legal too. You know, yeah. and there was a period where groin strikes were legal. He had some absurd kind of moments of two guys just on the ground, just taking turns, just like <laughs> walloping each other's crotches. It's Friday's at my house. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Ask the wife. Um, the uh, you know, and 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 when you really think about it, like you mentioned, it is a bit high minded to say, well, it's more violent. I mean, I was I paid for the pay per view where I watched what's his face chew off mm -hmm. a guy's ear. What was that fight? Um, Evander Holyfield, yeah. Mike Tyson, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mike Tyson. And uh, yeah, that was that was a bit violent. Uh, in fact, I think Evander Holyfield probably uh, got the brunt of that one. So. Uh, they, they tend, they're doing this thing and then they meet, I believe the Vegas people, right? Uh, yeah. It, so, um, the original owner of the UFC, Bob Meyerowitz was trying to get the company back on cable, sort of in a desperate push. And he was going all over the country, trying to get athletic commissions to sanction it and sort mm -hmm. of 
um, undo some of the political damage that had come out of their sort of first couple of years of runaway success where they were kind of making more money than they were prepared to, I think, initially even. Um, and Lorenzo Fertitta was the youngest member of the Nevada State Athletic uh, Commission mm -hmm. um, at that time. And so he was one of the people that um, Bob Meyerowitz and a lobbyist he brought with him was trying to persuade to um, let the UFC hold events in Nevada because he had been told by some cable operators that if he got a big state, a state that had a boxing legacy like Nevada, that was as, as respected as the Nevada commission was, you know, for whatever you take that for, mm -hmm. um, if he could get that, something like that, then they would consider putting it back on regular pay-per-view and sort of save him from the satellite kind of limbo zone he was in. And you know, that would, that would turn the money pipe back on it help him be able to start turning a profit again. And tell um, us about the Fertitas, because I mean, it was, this a, was this a, a kind of a linchpin moment where legitimate money comes in and kind of, well, a big money comes in and kind of legitimizes them and, and, uh, and that kind of helps move the needle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's the big catalyst. So the Fertitta brothers, Lorenzo and Frank, the third, they, they are heir to, station casinos um which is the the first major locals gaming casino in las vegas their father frank jr started it in the mid 1970s uh with the idea that this would just be a casino for local people it wouldn't be a tourist attraction it was off the strip it was out in the middle of nowhere on sahara boulevard like and all it would be was sort of bingo slot machines, you know, some light table games and just a friendly low key place for people to kind of let off steam. And it, you know, over a few decades, it sort of transformed into a giant billion dollar a year business. So by 2000, which is the year that they, um, they took over the UFC, the end of 2000, that same year station brought in almost a billion dollars. I think it was $980 million wow. in revenue for the year. Um, from, I think at that point they had something like 16 different casinos, uh, around Las Vegas, all off strip, all in the sort of all, strip, all local. Yeah. And, and they really controlled it. So they had deep, deep pockets and they had even deeper access to, to credit and banking. And, um, they had a lot of connections politically, um, and, uh, they had a lot of, one of the, one of the people they wound up hiring later on came from the Nevada attorney general's office. Um, another person they hired to help deal with, um, athletic regulations was Mark Ratner, who was another member of the athletic commission in Nevada. Um, so, you know, they, they had a lot of cachet with people that Bob Meyerowitz didn't. And sort of like I was saying earlier that you know, about how small an operation the UFC originally was. And that's sort of part of how they got in so much trouble is that, you know, they had more success than they were prepared to really <laughs> deal with sort of politically, legally, financially. It sort of just all happened all at once. And, you know, they're trying to solve seven different problems, big problems when they're really only equipped to do, you know, one or two at a time. Um, but the Fertitas had money, they had capital, they had reputation that allowed them to deal with all seven of those problems simultaneously. And they had money to keep going without having just financial crisis after financial crisis um, in the interim before they really, you know, turned the company around. They were able to lose 
you know, six, seven million dollars a year. And it, it wasn't a threat to their livelihood. You know, they could lose seven million dollars when they're making nine hundred eighty million dollars from the gaming business. You know, that's that's not a, a sort of fundamental threat to their to their well-being the way it was for Semaphore. There you go. And it just goes through this whole arc. And, and now it's, you know, it's just huge mainstream. They make a lot of money. What are some of the most, uh, more surprising, maybe stories or teasers or tidbits you can give us maybe that you, you found in the book that you were just like, wow, people are really going to be mind blown when they read about this. Yeah, that's a tricky question. I actually have to think about that for a while. Part of it, cause it's such a complicated story. I mean, one yeah. of the hard parts about writing the book was trying to condense uh the history of a company which now is like you know 400 some employees big not counting endeavor and and all the other how to make that a sort of coherent um vision so i mean a lot of the things that i found most memorable were really like character moments mm -hmm. um here's what i actually had to cut this out of the book but i i um spent some time with nick and nate diaz's boxing coach richard perez um, who I think is just a great guy and I, I love talking with him, but he's a guy that's, you know, he doesn't get a lot of, um, notoriety in, in MMA circles, but, um, he was, he's such an interesting character. He was, he was thrown out of his house when he was 14 because he was epileptic and his father was deeply religious. So he thought mm -hmm. when his son was having seizures, he was being possessed by demons. He was completely Holy like crap. freaked out by it. So he Jesus. kicked him out. And his father had also been a pro boxer and he had brought up all his kids to learn how to box. He brought them to the gym with him, you know, when they were younger. So when Richard found himself out on his own for the first time, um, boxing was the only way he knew how to support himself. So he would make money by offering to be a sparring partner. He'd spar for 25 bucks a session with guys in Fresno, which is my hometown. That's where he grew up too. Um, and just, you know, as a, as a teenager, completely alone, that was his one way of sort of not ending up homeless or on the streets. And then, wow. you know, that led him to eventually being a boxing coach. Um, and it, but even that, you know, he, he coached world champions, but he never made enough from it that he was able to quit his day job. So when he met Nick and Nate, he was still working as a high school janitor and then just going to the gym at night to train fighters. And it, it's stuff like that, those kind of details that sort of like the human kind of mm. circumstance that lead people into fighting and and what kind of characterizes that the relationship people have over a lifetime in fighting sports that to me was was the most meaningful. Like it, that's the stuff that sticks with me after having gone through this whole six year process of reporting this stuff out. There you go. Yeah, the the um, and then even with the Fertitis, they they had trouble with uh, that. There was financial issues for them when the fall of the, I think it was the two thousand eight <clears throat> crisis, where they've kind of extended themselves the two thousand eight housing crisis. Because yeah. I remember they had several projects under works uh, for the station casinos. They were building like I don't know station casino like Seven Elevens um, at one point, or they, they I think it was projected. I remember the, uh, I think it was the North Las Vegas one that uh, got, into, got them kind of overextended in trouble, I think, when they were building it. Yeah, and, that had just opened when the collapse yeah. happened. And yeah. They had I just remember. gone public, too, and they had, they, so they had um, 
or they had gone, sorry, they had gone um, private. So they had to buy back all their shares and they, they took on a huge amount of debt to do that. Mm -hmm. And then they wound up right when the crisis had, that was about a year before the real estate collapse. And so Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they couldn't service their own debt. So they had to go into bankruptcy proceedings. Yeah. Crazy, (laughs) crazy story. And, and somehow the UFC just keeps building through this all and just keeps going. Uh, I think Dana White survived a few different, uh, I don't know, moments, or I think there was some, I think sometimes there was something they either said or different things that happened. I know a couple of the fighters have gotten in trouble. I think there's one in trouble right now. Um, and there's a lot of it. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of interesting characters doing interesting things with maybe a little too much testosterone or maybe some other things going on. Um, but yeah, they, it seems like they, you know, they just keep plowing through and, and keep growing and, and, um, uh, it just appears there's no end in sight. In fact, I think it's technically bigger than boxing right now. Is boxing even still a thing anymore? I guess it is for lightweight yeah. and medium. I don't even care for lightweight and medium. Like I, I, like I said, I guess I'm just an old, I'm an old guy who's on the lawn going, get off my lawn kids. I mean, I still love the heavyweights, you know? all that fighting. And when I see the little guys fighting, I'm like, well, that's cute. But I mean, people love it. So what do I know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a yeah. common theme in the UFC too. I've one of my best friends only watches heavyweight fights. Yeah. Like, so, okay. So I don't feel so bad that I'm, no, yeah, I'm not yeah. that old stick of a mud that, you know, I mean, there's, uh, the, if you grew up watching fucking Ollie and Frazier and, uh, all the greats from back in that day, it was just, it was an extraordinary time to live through. It just, yeah. and, and the fighting, when you've seen the rumble in the jungle, when you've seen the rope-a-dope, um, you know, and, and you watching, watching, uh, uh, watching, uh, what's his face, spar just verbally with, you know, they were always arguing, uh, the announcer from ABC, Wide World of Sports, uh, how it goes south. Uh, always arguing and sparring with uh, with Muhammad Ali. I mean, it's just a magical time of history, um, and the characters were just seem larger than life. And you know, I mean, I, I could tell that the WF was fake. I had to, <laughs> sorry, did I break anybody's feelings? Did I did I tell somebody Santa Claus is is real? Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Uh, anything more you want to tease out of the book, Michael? Before we go and before I finish assaulting uh, anybody who likes wrestling at this point. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really a teasing kind of person. All right. Well, I like spoilers. That's my I like spoilers. So I'll just tell you how it ends. Tell you the last <laughs> line. Well, I mean, uh, technically, <laughs> you got a, a couple books you can work on for this uh, going on here and on there. Uh, I think, you know, Dana White's an extraordinary, interesting guy. Um, is he, would you frame him as a consummate leader, visionary, entrepreneur, uh, endless promoter? Is, is he really that dude? Is Can you really look at the UFC and say, this thing made it because of him? Um, it made it in the form that it's currently in because of him. Oh. And uh, I think it would have survived regardless. I think that's one of the sort of myths that gets told a lot. That, really? You know, MMA wouldn't exist without UFC and Dana. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were... You know, the Fertitas and Dana White were certainly central to MMA getting formed in in the state that it's currently in. Mm -hmm. But, 
you know, even when the UFC in the late 90s was going through its difficulties, pride was massive in Japan. There was a massive global audience um, growing. That's part of what made it such an appealing acquisition target for the Fertitas. I think they, yeah. you know, they knew they were getting an underpriced asset for $2 million. That, $2 you know, million? Yeah. They I remember the that. That's coming and, back to me. Wow. $2 million. You know, Apparently, Meyerowitz offered it offered him fifty percent for a million dollars, um, and they said we'll take the whole thing for two. Wow! But you know, part of what made that such a good deal is in Japan, you were having you know ten, twenty million people watch Pride events, you know, mm-hmm. and so that doesn't translate to American revenue per se. But there is still enough of a spillover audience and enough of a kind of cultural memory. And even separate from the UFC, you had this whole new generation of regional fight promoters like your friend you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um, you know, King of the Cage was going on in California. Mm-hmm. IFC had been going on. IFC actually had the first um, free televised MMA event, um, I think, in all the United States, which was an, uh, a broadcast on a local affiliate in Alabama in advance of one of their shows down there in, I think, 98. 98 or 99. Um, but there was this, you know, um, you know, there's a whole host of people working on these sort of knockoffs and follow-ons from the original UFC's success. So there was a real churn there in the market, you know, and there was, things were catching. It was slowly kind of building and bubbling up. It was just <clears throat> whether that would have led to, you know, the state of MMA today that we have that we're all familiar with, with one unified sort of coherent brand which is something you don't have in boxing, you know, that's part of, yeah. you know, one of the struggles that the boxing has had is sort of like, there's nowhere to go to follow a coherent, you know, narrative about who's fighting who and why. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's what I wanted to really sort of write about in the book is not whether they sort of saved MMA, but how their efforts created MMA that we know today in the particular form. There you and, go. Yeah. Maybe it'll be as big as that new thing they have out where you slap each other in the face. Have you seen that thing? Yeah. Is that part so of UFC? Are they the ones that are back part of, That's the Fertitas and Dana White. Damn, and, man. Uh, I believe John Mulkey is involved. He's the old CFO from the UFC. The I've started watching I've started watching some of those things, and I'm just like, holy crap. That looks like a – I mean, the, the, the football people are like, wow, that's more – you know, mm. who, who's the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, – um, old quarterback from the seventies, Terry that, Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw. I mean, he's had like I think at least uh, somewhere under a hundred uh, concussions. I think in his lifetime. I don't know. He doesn't remember either. Mm. Um, but uh, you watch that, and you're just like, that looks like a concussion problem the NFL had. I don't know, man. But whatever, man. Whatever works, man. Yeah. I guess, well, I guess uh, I don't know. I, there's a few people I think I could, I'd like to see uh, uh, do a slap fight, uh, at least with me and my enemies. Um, <laughs> evidently, uh, Elon Musk and Mark uh, Zuckerberg have announced their, they might do a cage fight. Yeah. I mean, that's one you'd rather see them do a slap fight than a cage fight. I mean, yeah, I'd pay to not watch them. Yeah, because they're just like, going to pull each other's hair pretty yeah. much. and. I don't know, take swipes at each other with their with their HP calculators or something. I don't know what goes on there. Pocket protectors or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> make, make fun of your ability. I don't know. Maybe they'll just take turns going and deep diving uh submersibles that aren't certified and see how that works. Yeah. Um 
there's I mean, that. that was the whole boxing celebrity boxing from the early 2000s if you remember fox yeah. used to play like tom arnold i think did oh it. yeah yeah and the screech uh, what's his name dustin diamond mm-hmm. and tanya harding do um i forget who the the matchups were but yeah there's a period where you I think could it was tanya harding in a kneecap i think uh yeah. versus kneecap something but like that there's a whole series yeah I mean, it's it's fascinating, you know. I, anytime I see Cage fighting, I, I just think of that uh, that movie, uh, Thunderdome. You know, two men mm-hmm. enter, one man leave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God bless that show. Uh, so, thank you very much for coming on the show, Michael. We really appreciate it. It's been a lot thank of fun, you. and I think people are really, of course, going to join the book because there's so many fans for this too, as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope so. There uh, you go. Worked very hard on it. Hope there you go. Like it. So we don't have a, a dot com or a plug. Uh, so people just uh, click the link on the Chris Voss show. You'll see it, of course, posted everywhere. Uh, order the book where refined books are sold. Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. What an incredible story. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Voss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Voss, and find us over at TikTok at Chris Voss One and the Chris Voss Show podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. We'll see you guys next time. And that should have us out, man. <laughs>